Welcome to the Family Practice Podcast. Before we get into this episode, we just want to let you know that we now have enamel pins of our logo available on our website, familypracticepodcast.com, in the shop section. This is a great way to show your LGBTQ pride at work, at home, on your commute, wherever you like. Uh, We hope you enjoy this week's episode. Thank you very much for listening. This is the Family Practice Podcast, an informal interview-style podcast exploring the stories, experiences, and expertise of LGBTQ medical providers. I'm your host, George Brayden. Welcome to the Family Practice Podcast. This week we have with us Dr. Dimitri Daskalakis. Thank you so much for meeting with us on a busy Friday afternoon. Would you mind letting the listeners know a little bit about what you do? So where do I start? Um, So I am the Deputy Commissioner for Disease Control um, at the New York City Department of Health. So I'll translate that into normal people language, which is um, I oversee the public health programs that revolve around infectious diseases. So that means HIV, tuberculosis, uh, immunization, um, general communicable diseases, the public health laboratory, and um, STI. So a lot of a lot of things. That is a lot of jobs. Mm-hmm. I also see patients. Um, I have uh, one half clinic day that I've maintained um, at Mount Sinai. Um, so I still am a practicing clinician while I do public health work. And what kind of what's your patient population that you see? Shifting. So uh, my patient population, um, I, I have about 100 patients still, so it's not very big, although um, I see them in a half-day clinic, so there it's pretty busy. Um, and it's about, now it's about 50% people living with HIV. Um, majority of those people living with HIV are gay, bisexual, and other men who have sex with men, although I do have some, uh, some other folks. And then the uh, other half really is pre-exposure prophylaxis. So I'm seeing a, a lot of folks who are using um, HIV medicines to prevent HIV infection because of risk. Okay. So I'm going to bring us back a minute. Sure. When did you first decide that you wanted to go into medicine? Oh, oh so medicine, capital M, or medicine, internal medicine? Capital M. So when I was two, um, really? two years old, I wow. decided that I was going to be a doctor. I can attribute that to my Fisher-Price kit. Um, it was, I still have it. Um, and it's, I used to make people um, who came to my parents' house uh, submit to physical examination in the order of me checking their vital signs and their fake temperature and doing like uh, their, their reflexes with a hammer, which was a fake hammer. So <laughs> it was just one of those things that I wanted to do, didn't really have any role models, um, but I can go back and say two or three years old okay. is when I uh, decided to, be a, to do something medical, whatever that eventually meant. So did you do in the normal sort of pre-med path and everything you were set up to go in? Sort of. I had no idea what I was doing because I didn't really have, a, you know, anyone to pattern on. Um, my parents did not do anything medical. Um, and so I went to undergraduate, which is in New York City. I went to Columbia University and I decided to do pre-med and then I realized being pre-med and being a biology major wasn't very different. So I was a biology major. So most of my pre-med stuff got swallowed into biology. 
But because I couldn't help myself because I was a Columbia, I was also a religion double major. So I did biology and religion, which meant twice the work. <laughs> and um, religion was a really great trick because I got to take all sorts of classes that were hard to get into as a biology major. So I could do all sorts of archaeology and sociology and all these like really cool courses. And, um, and so, yeah, so I did both. And pre-med was what got me to biology. Um, but yeah, it, it was, uh, so it's typical, I guess, cause I went straight through. I didn't take some kind of giant break. I, you know, graduated from high school in 1991, um, made it through, uh, college until 1995. Then, you know, went straight to med school. My only, my only break in the actual time frame was that I was a chief resident, um, after I was a resident. So that added a year to my training. Um, but otherwise, I've been, from the timing perspective, very traditional. And then in terms just of your personal identity, uh -huh. when did you, like, come out? Uh, depends on to who. Mm -hmm. So probably, like, I would say that a safe uh, age would be when I was 18. So you came out quite young. If, like, in that era, that yeah, was young, I think, yeah. Yeah, in that era. Yeah. So I was, it was, like, 1992. Two-ish. Okay. And so, like, I definitely had people who were, like, aware that I was a gay man, that I was gay, but not that it wasn't like I was. Well, I mean, when I came out, I came out with a bang, like, as everything else I would do. Like, so I ended up, you know, being the head of the LGBT group at Columbia for a while. So I was like, if you're going to come out, may as well do it big. And so that's what happened. And so it became, I think that's, that's at least partially a, uh, a really good way of dealing with stuff because, you know, Everyone knows, so who cares? Mm -hmm. How so? How did people care? Was it a problem at all for you in medical school being out, being sort of medical a school? Sure, it was. Yeah. Um, NYU was a great place. That's where I did my medical resident, my, my med sorry, my medical school training. But you know, definitely, I was my sensitivity to being out in the workplace. Didn't I? Didn't really get super. I mean, I was out at the workplace, but I didn't feel super comfortable about it until probably my residency. Med school is like a kind of weird place because, um, you know, especially in New York City and in other places, you rotate through a lot of different environments. And so like your rotation through Cal and Lord, that tends to go really well. Your rotation at a small hospital in, uh, in Long Island, you, I, you don't know how to navigate that. So I think, I think it's a different, it, it was, it was, it didn't really hold me back, but definitely I had like a consciousness of it that eventually I've lost. Okay. Yeah. And what sort of shaped you into going into HIV prep kind of medicine? Great. Um, so I went into, I wanted to be a doctor since I was a kid. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't know what that meant. So I was at Columbia as an undergrad and you know as I sort of exploded I, I didn't just break that closet door open or open it I broke it open um, I decided to do stuff in the sort of gay health space and in 1991 there was really only one thing in the gay health space which was HIV like that's all that's all there was so I used to go to like high schools and teach kids about HIV prevention and do all these programs and you know but there was one that was pivotal for me um, that really showed me that what I wanted to do was HIV. And that was in 1995, 
on April 22nd, um, we did a display of the AIDS Memorial quilt in uh, New York City at Columbia. And um, it was a, a very long, year-long process of arranging it with a lot of emotional turbulence, including some of the people that were organizing it were getting sick with AIDS and were getting admitted to hospitals, and were, you know, it was rough. Um, you know, having to travel to San Francisco and go to the AIDS Memorial Quilts warehouse, which I can still smell because um, mm -hmm. it smelled like teak, and it was very bright, and all of the... All of the panels were shrouded with like linen and just a very re remarkable experience. Um, and and so it culminated on that day because we actually showed the quilt. And I remember not expecting to see like so many people coming to this memorial, touching these quilts and sort of missing people that were there and themselves, many of them looking like they were on the like edge of death. This was 1995, just when antiretrovirals, the heart, highly active antiretroviral therapy started to make the scene, but before it had much impact. So I remember as like a, whatever I was, 20 years old or so, um, just sort of being there saying, you know, my desire is to do something where, you know, folks would never have to get HIV again. And if they did get HIV, that it wouldn't be, a, a death sentence that created such stigma that you could see such torture on people's faces mm -hmm. and like how, you know, it was almost, they were there, but they were worried they were there. And it, it, it was a very, it, that day was really important. So I remember that feeling and that's, and standing there and honestly on college walk at Columbia college university, standing there going like, well, I guess I'm going to do HIV, whatever that means, having no idea what that meant. What has that meant to you? Well, I mean, so I didn't know how to do it. I had no idea how to go into <laughs> HIV medicine, much less medicine. So, like, somehow I managed to get into med school, which was a miracle. And um, when I got to med school, um, you know, I, I, HIV was something that they kept away from you a little bit because they didn't want to scare you and they didn't want their med school to be a med school that people looked at and said, oh, that's an HIV med school. And how, I mean, that must have been strange for you, having coming out at 18, having friends with HIV, yeah. like having HIV be all around Having you. people who, I, who like, I disappeared from my world because they were sick and dying. Yeah, and then yeah. having people say, no, like, be over here. We don't want this to scare you. Well, so a lesson to med students everywhere and other people in, 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 in sort of health work is, so I took it upon myself to add it to my life as something extra. So I used to go and hang out with some of the HIV attendings that were doing things on the AIDS ward back in the day when there was one. Um, and, you know, I really got to see what really sick people looked like and what they did to keep them alive and also how to care for them when they were dying in a way that was compassionate. And so I, I you know, I got my, my, my share of it, um, but it was because I tried harder to get it. And I remember, you know, it's a really funny story, but my first infectious disease attending um, at Bellevue Hospital is uh, Charles Gonzalez, or was Charles Gonzalez, who is currently the medical director of the AIDS Institute. So I had some pretty good role models who were like, you know, who I saw how they did the work. And so I, I, I so what being an HIV doctor meant to me then was, you know, implementing antiretroviral therapy and getting people, you know, tested and often they had AIDS and getting them out of the woods of AIDS and into sort of a, a place where things were good again. And so that's evolved where I feel like mainly what I do is, um, you know, 
tell people who are newly diagnosed that they're going to be fine, because I believe they are, put them on medicines that are fairly simple and watch them thrive. But then also have complications related to drug use, alcohol, and smoking. Yeah. So then I become, what happens is like my HIV doctorhood um, has become primary care with HIV on the side. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when you were doing kind of the, the heart of the epidemic yeah. work, how did you maintain your personal life balance mm. outside of the clinic with your clinical balance? Um, when some of these people I'm sure you probably knew yeah. socially, if you wouldn't mind taking us there. Yeah, I mean, I um, feel like there's at least a piece where it's important to compartmentalize your life a bit, even though, you know, it, it's it would be nice to say that medicine is like some holistic wonderland and that, you know, your persona in clinic is the same as your persona out of clinic. And that's not really what happens. Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like you bring in pieces of your persona and who you are into the clinic, and that's what your patients love about you or hate, but usually love (laughs) because they stick with you. Um, But I feel like there just is, you know, you have to create a boundary. And so, you know, I've I've, over years have taken care of friends um, who had HIV who came to me because they trusted me. And, you know, what happened in the clinic stayed in the clinic. I guess it's like Vegas. And so I didn't really have... um, you know, I mean, when I walk in the room sometimes and in my head, I'm like, I know so much about what's going on in this room that no one else knows about. Totally. Mm-hmm. I would, it would absolutely happen where I would go like this, you know, I have a lot of information on like half this room and you know, that's what professionalism is. Like you have to sort of, you know, compartmentalize it and it's not something that you you talk about cause you're not allowed to and you shouldn't. But then also, um, you got to sort of live your life, like, you know, as, as the kids would say now with your own truth, mm-hmm. uh, and sort of do what you do to sort of, you know, make yourself happy, um, while not impinging on the rights of others. And how do you feel Does like that, that answer that question? Very abs- complicated. Well, I think yes. Yeah. And I'm curious how like living your truth, yeah. how you think that impacts like your ability to connect with your patients. Oh, forget it. Like, that's why I can't, that's why I, like every two minutes I have to say, I'm sorry, my panel's full. I mean, like everybody, I mean, I'm not pretty, I'm not shy. That sort of breaking that, that closet door open was really good. And so that's subsequently has served me very well in both my, you know, public health career as well as my, my clinical career. Um, you know, I feel like um, having had bad experiences with doctors myself and other clinical providers myself, you know, a lot of like what I do in a room when I see a patient, as well as some of the work that's come out of this department that I've um, gotten to uh, help mold, um, definitely comes from that experience. So I think that, uh, you know, though your persona in the clinic is different than your persona necessarily on the street, you're still pulling from that experience and people respect you when you're able to speak exactly in their language and, and also... Um, from some of their experience. Yeah. The fir- first time I came to New York, I'm, I'm new to town, but the very first time I came here, I saw you on a big billboard. Yeah. Yeah. And that's me. That's, <laughs> <laughs> there I am. But that's, uh, and I remember thinking to myself, wow, um, you don't see a lot of. Well, we, that was on purpose. Yeah. And so when, when we were designing this campaign, it was called Bear It All. Um, I mean, the, and the joke is, and I'm, I'm just sort of channeling our former uh, commissioner of health. Um, it was lovingly called the Fire Your Doctor campaign, but we called it Baradol. Um, and when, 
I, where we sort of started talking about what that, what bear it all would look like. And it involves sort of people like ripping their clothes off to sort of demonstrate that they're being honest and have nothing to hide. I go, I can't make a bunch of New Yorkers like rip their clothes off without me, you know, having had this exact experience be one of them. So I'm, I, I, it just was one of those things where like, I am like as, as good a, uh, organizer of this campaign as I was like someone who probably would have used it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I fired my doctor before because they wouldn't do the right thing for me. And so, and I was doctorless for a while because I couldn't find someone who would do the right thing for me. And so the thought that now you can call 311 in New York City and say, I need an LGBTQ friendly provider yeah. in the game. Sure, we've got 130 of them. <laughs> Here's some names for you. So I mean, like, I feel like, you know, that's why that happened. What do you mean by do the right thing for you? I mean, you know, I think it's about actually being able to talk to your patients mm-hmm. and like, you know, in a universe where we have 20 minutes per patient and that most of your interaction involves typing in a computer to get your note in and your orders in so page, so people can keep moving, um, that sort of artistic way that you need to actually hear what your patient is telling you without judgment um, is really what drives, I think, the majority of really good primary care. I mean, yeah, there's training, you know, guidelines, you follow what the guidelines say. But, you know, if you don't ask someone if they're smoking, you don't know if they're smoking and you mm-hmm. miss the chance to do something. If you don't ask them what sex they're having, you don't know how to screen them for sexually transmitted infections and you can't really recommend how often they should get an HIV test. So you, so the idea that doing the right thing really means like being comfortable having a conversation and having a you know, cultural connectedness, not necessarily being of the same culture, but a cultural, like, sensitivity is the wrong word, but a responsiveness to people's culture to, you know, be able to mold your work to somehow weave it together with what science says. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, providers who can't talk about sex are not going to be a great provider for someone who's sexually active. Providers who are scared of talking about drugs, not a great provider for people who are using drugs. Providers who are scared about asking about mental health, not a great provider for mental health. And so, I mean, Bear It All is evolving. Like, so we're, we, we've got this LGBT piece. We've got um, a piece about sort of drug user health and like more is coming soon with mental health. So I feel like, you know, it, it's not just LGBT stuff that makes you want to bear it all. Mm-hmm. Very true. Yeah. How did you get involved in public health? So... Um, I've secretly been working for the Department of Health in New York City since I landed back in New York. We won't tell anyone. But it's not really, I wasn't really working for them. I was Uh just doing like work that, like that would help them. And so when I, mm, it's, it's, I'll give you the short story, but when I was a fellow in Boston, um, I did a lot of HIV work, obviously, and I ended up going into a lab. So I was a basic science immunologist and I was doing cell culture and learning how to do flow cytometry and all of this stuff that really didn't match my personality, like that I could do intellectually, but I was like not really the guy that should have been listening to my iPod sitting in a, in a laboratory, like talking to my cells, hoping that they don't die. Um, and so I didn't really realize that things were going well until there was a news report right around 2004, 2004-ish, maybe beginning of 2005, of a case of HIV transmission with rapid disease progression in someone with multi-drug resistance and also uh, someone who was apparently using meth at the time of their, methamphetamines, um, at the time of their uh, 
seroconversion. So it was uh, publicized in New York as the potential new strain of HIV that could be like the Andromeda strain, like the end of the world, like the worst HIV strain you could ever see. Now, it didn't end up being that, but it doesn't matter. Like the fact that the message was there, I was in this lab and I threw down my stuff and ran downstairs and started to call all my mentors from med school and said, I am coming back to New York. Like, I don't know how, I don't know where, I don't know how, but I'm done. I got to go back because this is why I started doing this work. And though I love my cell culture, I'm not going to do cell culture anymore. So I um, got a job at Bellevue. And I was doing things in the AIDS clinical trials group. So doing research with uh, uh, Dr. Judy Aberg. Um, and, um, though I was doing work in that space, um, very soon after I got there, there was a, uh, conference report that that individual that seroconverted with the multi-drug resistance actually w acquired that infection at a commercial sex venue in New York city hmm. at a bathhouse. And so next light bulb why aren't we doing testing for HIV at the bathhouses? Well, people had tried. It didn't get done. Um, and so I uh, convinced some really great researchers doing work in acute HIV infection in New York City that if I had some resources from their research study, we could actually put HIV testing, especially looking for acute infection, in these bathhouses. And so I sort of used that research opportunity to actually implement a program. And, you know, soon thereafter, um, you know, with a couple of people who were helping me with backpacks, with rapid tests, and with phlebotomy equipment, we went into bathhouses. I convinced them to give us a couple of rent-free rooms, which, by the way, we still have, um, meaning the, the Mount Sinai, actually, who's, who holds a contract, still runs those rooms, and started doing testing. And lo and behold, I got like 12.8% of the people that I was testing were newly diagnosed with HIV. Holy tamale, Batman. Mm -hmm. That's a lot. And so the next thing that happened was that funding went away, and New York City swooped in and said, this can't go away. And so um, with a lot of, like, you know, vision, they figured out a way to actually support that work. And so there was money that was going in to, uh, to do the clinical service now. And at that point, it became the, a clinical service of Bellevue Hospital. So Bellevue, which is where I was, um, was running these two clinics, in effect, diagnostic areas um, in two commercial sex venues in New York. And it went great. And so that was like from 2005-ish to two, you know, seven years. Then I moved it to Mount Sinai. And so I started a, a post-exposure prophylaxis program there called Project, uh, it was at that point, 3600. Um, and um, that actually now is funded by the Department of Health through a competitive solicitation. That same program I started and moved is now um, the PEP hotline in New York City mm -hmm. that is supported by ending the epidemic dollars from Mayor de Blasio. So, um, you know secretly working for DOH for so many years that when Jay Varma, who was my predecessor in my deputy commissioner job, sent me an email saying, oh, we're looking for an assistant commissioner. Maybe you're interested. Um, I said, well, what the heck? I did get my master's of public health like while I was in attending, um, at, like while living in New York at Harvard over summers. And I was like, well, here's your public health job of your dream. And wouldn't it be funny if my first public health job was the assistant commissioner for the Bureau of HID? <laughs> And that's exactly what happened. So then I was there for a couple of years, and then here I am, deputy commissioner over all the other stuff as well. And did you also start a prep 
initiative? So I started like, Sinai where I was, um, uh-huh. which is at what at, at a couple of the clinics. I was an early implementer of a, of a prep protocol. You seem to be kind of in the front edge of implementation at several stages of your career. Mm. What? Why? Why are you always out in front? Because I don't want to be in behind. Fair. I don't know what the right answer is to that one. I mean, I feel like HIV special. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, and that's what's so fun about my job now because it's actually, well, I'm going to say something controversial. It's not that special. So HIV is cool because you always feel like it's always about the next thing. And like what I've learned is that there's a lot of really important next things and in other infectious diseases like hep C is full of next things. So being able to do things in hep C is amazing. Like TB is full of next things. Um, you know, Zika virus is full of next things. So this, uh, this ability to sort of chase this a bit and do something, you know, beyond the next thing has become really exciting in, in non-HIV. But I think HIV in general is all about rapid implementation. Mm-hmm. Like that's the expectation of our community and our activists and our scientists that like we get it, we move. Yeah, and I think that there's a long history yeah. of folks in our community standing up and pushing for things to get it done. And I wonder sometimes um, if it would have gotten done without folks like you who are pushing. But like I'm only representing the people that I listen to. So like one of the things that's magic about this Department of Health and also magic about my career is that I, I mean, going down to that one case of acute HIV infection with rapid progression, that was one guy who told me to come back to New York in effect, mm-hmm. right? And then like I now have this like legion of, of advocates that I work with so closely and like they're usually right. And so what they see on the street, you know, they said make prep move faster. So we had to make prep move faster. They were right. And so I think that's the kind of of piece that's so important that especially in HIV, the sort of universe of implementers and government officials and scientists and clinicians and advocates are, we're not that different from each other. Mm -hmm. How, how is, how are you and your department working towards implementing prep in other communities that are sort of having a slow up? Yeah. Well, again, with ending the epidemic um, support that uh, was provided by uh, both the mayor and also city council, um, one of the important things that's happened is that we've changed our, well, STD clinics are non-existent in New York anymore. They're now sexual health clinics. And part of what they are doing is what I call um, something that's disease agnostic, that they're not really focusing on STD, but they're like traditional bacterial STDs, but they're focusing on broader sexual health and HIV prevention and treatment is a part of broader sexual health. So in a very short amount of time with those with those resources, clinics that didn't know how to prescribe HIV medicines are now prescribing them every day to the order of like a couple thousand people like are started on some antiretroviral plus plus a year. And so, you know, what happens is when we look at our surveillance and like our population, um, the the majority of people that are using our clinics are exactly the people that we think we can't find. So like, you know, we're seeing a lot of black and Latino men who have sex with men who are coming for sexual health services. And rather than just saying, here's your treatment for syphilis, it's here's your treatment for syphilis. Oh, and by the way, have you heard of PrEP? And so um, as we see a scale up of that work, we're also seeing that our numbers are different than the countries. So in New York City, you know, almost 70% of the people that started PrEP in our clinics, and now it's on the order of approaching 2000, if not over. Um, they're black or Latino, which is different than the data from the rest of the country. Yeah, very different, actually. Very, very, very different. And do you think that New York is specifically successful because the people were already there and people are just noticing and seeing it? 
or is there a messaging that? Uh, no, is also I think going New on? York is successful because New York is New York City is sort of you know they don't want to be behind just like I don't, mm-hmm. and so I think that when you think about um, about all this sort of ending the epidemic stuff that's taken over the country and the, the, the CDC is even using this language now, um, as far as I know, and I'm pretty connected. Mary de Blasio is the only mayor who put money in it mm. and said, like, here's an investment and you're going to, you know, here's the investment, make it work and make it work fast. So I feel like, you know, New York really walks the walk and talks the talk. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes we may, may not make the perfect program, but we get closer to the light every time. Mm-hmm. What has your work in this community meant to you personally? I mean, it's it's what I tell med students about advocacy in medicine, which is that, you know, uh, your community is kind of everything. And so, you know, if you put the community in the center of what you do, you're going to end up, and science right next to them, you're going to end up doing the right thing. And so for me, I just feel like, you know, it makes me wake up in the morning and think that my job is more like playing than work mm-hmm. because it's just, you know, you're just doing the right thing. I mean, and, and I'm talking about now broader communities, like forget LGBTQ, forget people living with at risk for HIV, but like, you know, the fact that I get to talk with all the sort of folks in STI and figure out how to do like better planning for, for screening and the talk to TB people and figure out how we can like do better with directly observed therapy. I mean, it's, you just sort of realize that, um, that you're in this, the whole reason, at least at this agency for sure, like the only reason we exist is to keep New Yorkers healthy. (laughs) Like it's really like, that's what you wake up in the morning for. And like the little stuff like that happened in this office that I think nothing of ends up rippling downstream and changing like potentially thousands of people's lives. Yeah. It's pretty awesome. It is. And I think your passion for your work is um, a little bit legendary in New York. I mean, <laughs> when I was telling people about the podcast, everybody was like, you have to talk to Dr. D. I oh, was, that's sweet. I was getting a tattoo, and I was telling my tattoo artist, and he was like, yeah, you need to talk to Dr. D. Oh, that's so sweet. Yes. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. I mean, it's good. I mean, I, I, you know, there's only one way to live, and that's passionately. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like, you know, that would be sad otherwise. Yeah. I like what I do. I like the people I work with, and I like the people I work for. Well, I'm, I need to be mindful <laughs> of your time because I know you are at work. Um, but I just want to thank you so thank much you. for all the work you've done, all the things you've implemented in this city, and for being, like, such an inspiration for, for the community. Thank you. I mean, i got to say one thing. Like, I feel that sometimes, especially the Department of Health, you know, it's, it's such a nurturing, wonderful agency that sometimes they put us up front and we're the face of everything. But everything that you've seen that's come out of this agency has represented the work of hundreds, if not thousands of people. And so I'm really happy that I got to sort of, I'm kind of like, you know, the underconductor under the commissioner. Um, And so it's really fun to conduct some of it, but really it's all about a lot of passionate people all working together. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Please note that this podcast is about individual experiences in healthcare and may be different from what you've experienced. If you would like to share your story, please message us on our website, familypracticepodcast.com, and we'll be in touch. The information discussed in this podcast should not be used for personal medical decision making. 
Any views or opinions expressed in this podcast do not represent the views or opinions of any organizations mentioned. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. There'll be a new episode in your feed in about two weeks, and thank you again for listening.